This is Randy Tom, and you're listening to Cinepod, the cinematography podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty well. How are you? Good, good. I heard a rumor that you might be vaccinated. I am, Ben. Thank you for uh, reminding me. I think it officially, I'm like official, official, but yeah, I, I got the vaccine last week, second dose, and it is gone pretty well. I'm I'm basically back to normal, so it didn't didn't take too long. It wasn't too terrible, and uh, I'll enjoy my 80-something percent immunity or whatever it is. It's more than that, and uh, so far, 100% relief from if you did get COVID from having to go to the hospital. But I'm excited that you're vaccinated because that means I think we're probably about uh, maybe a week and a half away from us being able to record host wraps in the same room again. I know. That's exciting. I think I think it'll be really great. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm super looking forward to it. I don't know if our listeners will know the difference, but they'll hear me talking about it because I can't shut my app. So today on the show, we have the amazing Randy Tom, who is a legendary sound designer. And when I say legendary, I, holy crap. I know you mean legendary. Like... like you could name five random big giant movies over the decades and he will have been involved in all of them. And our listeners might be saying, but this is the cinematography podcast, not the sound design podcast. And uh, every now and then, you know, we've been known to bring someone on who is not a cinematographer, but to talk about the creative process of, uh, of making a movie. And uh, somebody like Randy Tom has, uh, you know, such such a, a, a breadth, such a depth. His, the first film he ever worked on was Apocalypse Now, for God's sakes. His whole story is, is bonkers, and it's not dissimilar to many stories that we will have heard from cinematographers, but he's obviously approaching the craft of filmmaking from a different direction. But I think as you'll see as you listen to it, he's he's solving similar issues and problems and coming up with interesting solutions. His part of the industry has gone through a technological revolution after revolution since he started doing this, you know, what, 40 years ago. And his credits are just amazing. And he's just a he's a fascinating storyteller. I couldn't be happier that we had him on the show. Well, let's name a couple more of those fascinating, fantastic credits that you tease there. Just so, you know, our, our, our listeners are going like, hmm, I don't know. I, I don't really follow sound designers. Well, the, the big thing that we were here to talk to him about was The Midnight Sky, uh, the George Clooney movie that he just made. But, you know, he worked on lots of Star Wars Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. Oh. Indiana Jones. I, I always think it's interesting. He didn't work on the first Star Wars, but he did work on Empire. Uh, I always think it's interesting. The best one. We, did, yeah. we didn't get to this in the interview, which I'm sad about. Uh, he worked on Empire and then he ended up also working on Spaceballs, the Mel Brooks movie. And uh, and I always thought it was kind of interesting. Like, I wonder if for Spaceballs, that was like they they uh, had gotten someone who could really make Spaceballs sound like Star Wars. They like got one of the original people. He's equally at home at things that are animated. I know he worked on like The Incredibles and How to Train Your Dragon. And he also did movies like The Revenant. So it's like he, yeah. he's got an incredible, incredible top, uh, top shelf. Like one yeah. of, one of the best, and I won't get into it too much, but he has uh, an amazing story about Walter Murch, you know, the legendary editor. I'll, I'll let him tell it. I'm not going to get into it, but it but it, it kind of blew. It it let me know what I can ask of people if they ever ask me for a job. Let me put it that way. 
<laughs> okay. And hey, we got to give a special shout out and thanks to Roberto Miller, who uh, connected us with Randy Tom. Uh, Roberto, really great, long-term uh, friend of the show. And thank you so much for making that connection. That, that worked out great. Roberto, you kick all the ass. Thank you so much for doing that. Hey, so uh, Ben, we should dive into our close focus, which it seems it's the end of an era. And it's the end of an era you might not expect or might not be paying attention to unless you are working in Hollywood or happen to have noticed the Technicolor logo at the end of of so many movies. It sounds like Technicolor, one of the oldest and largest players in the post-production space, has just sold off their post-production business to a company called Streamland. And Streamland has uh, announced that that Technicolor name is going away. So it's just um, crazy. Yeah. When you told me this, it blew my mind because Technicolor, I mean, like if I say Technicolor to someone who's been around the film business for some period of time, there's a look that's associated like Technicolor pioneered the three strip process to create color films. So when you see a lot of early color films, they were made through a Technicolor process and they were just a legend and they were part of the film industry. I've gone to screenings at Technicolor's screening room. They've been huge. They, they've never gone away. And I mean, I guess it's a sign of the times. It's a sign that we've all gone digital because Technicolor was a film technology company, but they also did move into digital. They were one of the first to kind of move into digital. So to me, it's mostly sad that the brand Technicolor just won't exist anymore. Well, they, they still have some operations and they do still have their involvement with a bunch of other companies that still exist that weren't acquired by Streamland. But that name, especially though, like, you know, that you might see Technicolor with a very distinctive logo sort of in the credits at the end. It doesn't sound like you're going to see that anymore. It sounds like you're going to see Streamland or one of their other properties. Technicolor is actually a, a French uh, France headquartered business, and they went through a restructuring after filing bankruptcy in 2020 under Chapter 15. And uh, they still are going to be in business and uh, doing some, I think, some things that are not directly related to post-production. But the people who acquired them have also announced this past month that they plan to acquire Sim Digital's uh, international post-business. And I'm not exactly sure that when that will happen, but that's a a biggie too. Sim, of course, their post-production enterprises, uh, I think mostly through a company called Chainsaw, are famous for doing work for like Game of Thrones and stuff like that. So they're they're, they're a big post-player as well. And so Streamland's just on an acquisition kick. They picked up Technicolor's post-business for $36.5 uh, I mm-hmm. guess they're they're going to be a, a real player here going forward. So it's yeah, uh, or, I mean they're already I, a player. They're they're about to be a bigger player. I don't mean to cast any aspersions, and I'm sure that the Streamland people are wonderful. But if I were watching a movie and at the end it said "Color by Streamland," it wouldn't mean anything to me. But "Color by Technicolor" does. Yeah, um, I think it's interesting to to drop that that brand, which has a lot of association with it. I would have to have assumed that that name would mean something to them, but but maybe not. So yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well, it's a bummer, but, you know, it's just the the way of the world, you know, and uh, short of a brand like Kodak going away, I I feel like Technicolor is just one of those stalwarts that's just been around forever and and has worked in every phase of the industry. And it's a bummer to see them go. But, you know, that's life. What do you do? Yep. Yeah, that's what it is. Um, Okay. well, hey, let's get to the interview with Randy Tom. Here he is. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So we are very excited today. Uh, We are talking to a legendary sound designer, and uh, legendary doesn't even begin to touch it. We'll we'll get into some of his amazing work here in a second. But uh, Randy, Tom, thank you so much for coming onto the Cinematography Podcast. It's my pleasure. This is great. It'll be fun, I think. 
you are literally our first sound designer. And uh, as we were saying to our producer, Alana, a second ago, might, might as well start at the very top. <laughs> you know, there are very few people who've done the kind of work that you've done. Um, and you actually said something that, that I think uh, I, I'd like to ask you to repeat it if you could. You said this off mic. There's a George Lucas quote that sound is 50% of the experience. I would often say that sound is sometimes more than 50% of the experience. Like if I am looking at a beautiful movie with bad sound, I'm pulled out of it. Whereas if I'm looking at a murky or underexposed or out of focus movie, but the sound's right on, I, it can hold me. I can stay with it. But you've actually had this conversation with George Lucas and we'll get into more of that. But, you know, uh, what is it that you said to George Lucas? Well, you know, George, if sound is 50% of the film experience, then why isn't sound 50% of the budget? <laughs> that's so he funny. didn't have a good answer for that <laughs> yeah he, ha he has that alec guinness money spending on all the actors so sound design is such a specialized thing and I, I i don't know like i haven't done a census to see if there are more sound designers than cinematographers but my guess is probably not there's a lot of people who are drawn into cinematography but sound design is such a specialized and specific thing uh like when was the moment in your life that it occurred to you that that was the career path for you very late uh it never occurred to me certainly as a kid that i wanted to do sound work professionally i really stumbled into it mm. uh, i dropped out of college in you know, 1970 to be a better hippie and started <laughs> <laughs> hitchhiking across the country and uh, wound up hanging out at this place called Antioch College in Ohio. Which is a very oh, liberal... my wife is from Dayton, Ohio. I have been to Antioch okay. College. Yeah. yeah, Yellow Springs. Yep, I've been to Yellow Springs many times. Yeah, it's a wonderful place. And so I was not a student there. I was just hanging out in town because it was a cool, interesting little village. And I heard that the college radio station was looking for volunteers and they didn't really care whether you were connected officially to the college or not. And so I thought, well, that would be interesting to go learn how to be a DJ. And so I volunteered. I you know, had been pretty good at science and school and so it was pretty easy for me to figure out how the equipment worked and started you know doing dj work but then got bored with that and started looking around the radio station for other things to do and wound up producing little pieces for national public radio little news and documentary things and then worked in radio in public radio for five years and then started thinking about doing movie sound you know spent a year and a half you know knocking on doors in the san francisco area yeah i was about to ask uh, if you were still in ohio when that was happening because you know i've been i've been to ohio and, and the movie scene is there but not quite you know yeah not very hot uh, yeah. movie wise in ohio but yeah i had moved to the san francisco bay area in 1975 and was working at a public radio station there kpfa in berkeley which is the sister station of kpfk in los angeles yeah. and I think seeing the first Star Wars movie was what really kind of rearranged my chromosomes uh, in terms of sound <laughs> and really made me think, wow, that, that's amazing. I want to do that. And so I, I started trying to figure out how to make the transition from radio. And, you know, when people hear my voice and I, and I talk about having worked in radio, they say, well, yeah, of course, you have a radio sounding voice. But the irony is that in the kinds of radio stations where I worked, 
the last thing they wanted was somebody who sounded like this. You know, they <laughs> wanted uh, you know some you know squeaky sounding you know hippie guy. So it's, I'd sometimes alter my voice to sound cooler for them. <laughs> <laughs> but I started knocking on doors that got almost all politely sl- closed in my face. And finally, somebody said, you know, I took this seminar from a guy named Walter Murch at the San Francisco Art Institute. <laughs> and he was really nice and seemed very encouraging. Why don't you, you know, try to get in touch with him? And so somehow I got the, the number for American Zoetrope, Francis Coppola's company and got connected to Walter and I said you know I've worked in radio and done a lot of music recording but I've never worked on a film and I just I know that I want to do that and so he invited me to come down and hang out with him for a day. Wow. They were remixing American Graffiti into stereo. I sat there all day long and and watched them and went to lunch with them. Ben Burt was there. Mm. Um, Isn't R2-D2 actually his voice? Yeah, it is partly Ben Burt's voice, uh, but it's a variety of other things too. So at the end of the day, Walter, being the uh, kind of guy with one foot firmly in the practical world and one foot firmly in the uh, world of philosophy and academia, said, uh, okay, Randy, I'd like for you to write an essay about what you've seen today. And so I thought, well, I guess this is how you get a job in the movie business. You write an essay. I I have not made enough people write essays. I'm getting on that. (laughs) Apparently, Walter had never asked anybody else to write an essay and and hasn't since. And unfortunately, neither he nor I have a copy of the the essay that I wrote. But he liked what I wrote. And he hired me to work on Apocalypse Now. My God. I I spent uh, a year and a half working on the movie, uh, about half of the time out in the field recording sound effects, all all in post-production, you know, recording helicopters and guns and explosions and flies buzzing. Yeah. Yeah, you didn't go to their set. I did not go to the Philippines where they were shooting based on the documentary I've, I've seen on that you probably lucked out by not going to the set like it was uh, a pretty crazy scene i think they did do some uh, reshoots and inserts and etc in post caleb deschanel by the way was the dp for some of that stuff oh wow some of the most yeah some of the most beautiful cinematography in apocalypse now is that sequence where Captain Willard, the Martin Sheen character, is on the patrol boat going up the river and reading the dossiers. Mm. And you see like the sweat on his chest and it's it's amazing. And Caleb shot that stuff. And I'm sure even though he was pretty well established at that point, I'm sure he was you know shaking in his boots to some degree thinking, okay, Storaro's the DP on this. I better do a good job. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, I, I, uh, that was my film school, uh, Apocalypse Now, because everything that could possibly go right or go wrong did on that movie. And so that's informed everything that I've done since then. So doing sound design for, you said a year and a half, like that's a really long time to do sound design on a movie. What's a day of that like? What was the process and why did it take a year and a half? Was it mostly just guided by they were doing pickups and re-edits and stuff or what made it take that long? 
Yeah, well, first, I, I certainly wouldn't have called myself a sound designer on, on that film. I was very low on the totem pole. I was, you know, one of, one of Walter's assistants. But your question is valid because sound design was done on the movie for a year and a half. Yeah. I think the answer is that Francis Coppola was, you know, riding about as high as it's possible to ride in the movie business at that time. Over the previous couple of years, he'd won several Oscars. He was considered the you know, wonderkind of filmmaking. And on top of that, he's you know one of the greatest you know, salespeople in history. So he's very good in a meeting, very good dealing with studio executives. And mm-hmm. so he got away with a lot of things that most directors and producers wouldn't get away with because of all that kind of inertia behind him. And so when he told them that he needed that long to finish the film, they uh, said, okay. Wow. And that included obviously doing the sound work. Uh, The movie was mixed for nine months. (laughs) I'm sure that's an all-time record. We mixed it twice during the nine months at at least. Uh, One of the most intense experiences I've ever had working in movies was doing the mix for the Cannes Film Festival uh, for Apocalypse. Mm -hmm. Uh, The last week of that, before our drop dead morning where we had to ship it, I officially worked uh, 142 hours. Oof. Uh, None of us left the building for a week and we'd be at the mixing console for 8, 10, 12 hours and then go find a couch somewhere to lie down on for an hour or two and then come back for another 8 or 10 or 12 hours. Finally, uh, Walter's wife, Aggie, quite a formidable figure, came in and literally pulled him out of the room and said, you know, you're going home and going to rest <laughs> for a while. Uh, it's, it's kind of amazing that none of us uh, collapsed. It was quite a week. But the great thing, the amazing thing, is uh, I think in some ways that sound mix was even more interesting than the finished sound mix because it had a kind of raw edge to it because we had to do it so fast that the final mix didn't have. And, and believe me, I'm a fan of the final mix. It, it still more than stands up after all these years and is one of the best sound mixes of any film ever made agreed I mean, does the does that original mix still exist somewhere or is it long since it's long since gone oh man yeah yeah i mean i think i watched apocalypse now maybe six months ago and it's shocking how the look of that movie holds up and and the sound design is just so key and so like it really cuts through it the first thing that really hits you in that movie is the sound design the the sound of the helicopters and 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 that stuff and the way it used that jim morrison song at the beginning it's just a a brilliant piece of art on like everyone's firing on all cylinders in that movie yeah it was amazing chemistry uh and i think one of the great things that happened that contributed to all of that was the mix of people working on the project not only the you know obvious department heads uh, like Dean Tavalaris, the production designer, and mm-hmm. Storar, the DP, et cetera, et cetera. But the levels of, kind of age and experience of the people working on the movie was pretty diverse. There were quite a few people like me who had either never worked on a film before or had only worked on one or two but had experience in a related field. But there were also people in the sound department, for instance, 
like uh, Les Hodgson and Les Wiggins, these two older English sound editors who had worked for you know, Kubrick and David Lean and etc. Wow. And brought all of that to the project. And the chemistry between those two groups of people was really interesting and productive because all of us kind of young, wet behind the ears, crackpots with uh, crazy <laughs> ideas, some of which you know made some sense and some didn't. I think really enlivened the older people who, you know, if you do something long enough, it's it's so hard not to get a little jaded about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I think all of us supplied, a, a, all of us younger ones supplied a, a level of energy that might not have been there otherwise. And obviously what we, the younger, less experienced people got out of it was the incredible benefit of having the wisdom of these people who had been already doing it for 25 or 30 or 40 years to draw on. That's cool. Was there like an aura around that project? Cause again, like I've seen the documentary hearts of darkness and it looks like, you know, if you were on that shoot, it sounded extremely difficult for everybody. But I wonder like when you're working on something like that, it's the first movie you've ever worked on. Could you tell, uh, did you know that you were kind of in a circumstance that was unlikely to ever be repeated? I don't think you ever know for sure, you know, how well a film is going to turn out, you know, and sometimes even when a film you've worked on is finished or nearly finished and you think it's really good, you know, sometimes that's a form of Stockholm syndrome. Mm. <laughs> if you've oh, yeah. convinced yourself that it's better than it is. Been there. The other side of the coin is sometimes you, you're more critical of a movie than you should be. So you never know how good it's going to be or how much impact it's going to have. But I think it's safe to say most of us who were working on Apocalypse Now knew that it had a, a good shot at uh, making a big splash in a variety of ways, you know, just as a movie and as a cultural moment and yeah, etc. There was a lot of buzz about it in the press even then. Obviously, there were stories about production delays and Martin Sheen having a heart attack in the middle of production and all that sort of thing, which sort of helped it stay in the news. And people were fascinated, obviously, with Francis and what he was up to. But I thought it was probably going to be a pretty big deal. That's amazing. I mean, just amazing that the f- the first movie you ever got to work on was that. Did you at at that point did you ever have uh, any thoughts about returning back to the radio world or were you, you know, a year and a half uh, at any job you're you're everyone's going to forget that you ever did the other thing anyway, but Right. Yeah, cuz the pay in the radio world is so good. I was considering that <laughs> often. <laughs> Especially the public radio world. Uh, well, in fact, I did sort of return to radio intermittently for quite a few years there because uh, when I would have breaks between film projects, I would sometimes be approached by people to work on a radio production of one kind or another. For example, mm. we did the 50th anniversary version of War of the Worlds, the Orson Welles production. Oh, wow. And uh, recorded it at Skywalker Ranch and recorded it very much in the way we would have recorded a film. So we had mics on booms and we recorded a lot of it out of doors and in real world situations rather than studios. We really mm-hmm. wanted it to sound like a movie. And so that was a great opportunity for me to you know, bring some of the things I'd learned by that time in movies to back to radio. Oh, interesting. That's really cool. 
your next credited thing, and I'm sorry, like we could spend the next five days going through all of the amazing, noteworthy films that uh, you worked on, but your next credit is on as a sound effects recorder on The Empire Strikes Back, which is a movie that to this day, when you're in any kind of meetings about story or anything, The Empire Strikes Back is always brought up as one of the landmark, not just a landmark genre film, just a landmark film, like a, like a, a film that's much like Apocalypse Now, everything's firing on all cylinders. And, you know, you saying that the original Star Wars Episode Four, A New Hope, was the movie that raised this interest in you. What was it like to work on the follow-up, which, you know, is one of the most amazing films, certainly, of its generation, if not ever? Well, uh, I, I certainly felt like I had, you know, walked through uh, the looking glass uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> into Wonderland. You know, what a fairy tale beginning of a movie career to go from Apocalypse Now to The Empire Strikes Back. But I got that job because, as I said, I had met Ben Burt and we wound up going on a couple of audio recording expeditions together during Apocalypse, actually, and after. So when Apocalypse Now was over, he contacted me and said, would you like to work on Empire Strikes Back? So that's how I got involved. My job on Empire was a little more focused, I would say, than it was on Apocalypse. On Apocalypse, as I said, I spent about half the time in the field recording sound effects and half assisting in the sound mix. On Empire, my job was very much just to go out and collect sounds for Ben to manipulate. I had had quite a bit of experience by then using portable recorders, Nagras, yeah. and microphones. I was just et curious, yeah, like when you, when you're doing yeah. that, what does that look like? Is that just like finding a factory or finding a swamp or find you know like scouting places that you could go and that just you show up with a boom mic and a headphones and a Nagra and just record a bunch of whatever strikes your fancy? Yeah, in those days, it involved uh, using the yellow pages a lot. Remember those, the yellow. We'll pages? have to explain those to our listeners. We'll include a, a link in the show notes. <laughs> right. It was an early uh, beta form of Google. Yeah. <laughs> and, and let's take the Imperial Walkers as as an example. Uh, the Imperial Walkers were those big four-legged robots that uh, the bad guys rode around in in Empire Strikes Back, and. Ben wanted, and George, of course, wanted to come up with a really interesting kind of locomotion sound for them, the sound for their legs. That was, I think, my first assignment on the film from Ben. And we spent a few minutes brainstorming about what kind of raw material we might be able to collect to construct a sound for the Imperial Walker's legs. And we knew they were going to look metallic, of course, and we knew that they were huge. And so we just tried to think of as many possible sources as we could of metal impacts and metal scraping, etc. So as you suggest, I did look, I looked in the yellow pages under factories and all kinds of metal working facilities. And I stumbled upon this kind of device that I don't think I knew anything about before which is a, a metal shear. It looks a little like a guillotine, and they come in various sizes. Some are you know, not much bigger than a toaster, and some are almost the size of a small house, depending on <laughs> the size of metal that you want to cut. But they basically cut sheet metal, and so sheet metal arrives at this facility in a big 
roll that looks a little like a roll of toilet paper and the metal is fed into this machine and the machine can be programmed in those days programming was a fairly primitive thing but it can be programmed to cut any length of piece of sheet metal that you want depending on what the application is but the cool thing about it sound wise was not only that it made a pretty impressive kind of bang clang sound when the blade comes down to cut the piece of metal but it was a pneumatic driven device so you had this really wonderful kind of multi-syllabic sound (laughs) that would happen you know every time just before the blade came down and so just as soon as I heard it, I thought, wow, that's the Imperial Walker. <laughs> and so I spent several hours uh, recording those at that facility and other facilities. And uh, it turned out that that is about 95% of the sound of the Imperial Walkers, the, those metal shears. It's crazy to think about, too, because the world is so different today. Like if you're looking for any sound effect, you know, there's any number of online services and libraries you can get them from. But back then, I know that like the studios had their own sound effects libraries, probably on like reels of tape or something like that. But it wasn't like you you couldn't just go to a Yeah, yeah. It was like Magstripe film, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You couldn't just go to a database and pull up like, hey, I need sound of a metal shear. Like you might as well go out and record it on your own. But also like, you know, by doing so. You make sure that it, it, it's so unique. It, it's a specific sound that only you have because it's so funny listening to movies, even kind of pre probably 1990s, like punches and kicks and stuff like that. A lot of them sound the same. And I, I have just always assumed it's because they didn't have a wide library of those. So when you hear more modern movies, like every sound is, is a little unique. Yeah. In the old days, the tendency was to use many of the same sounds over and over again. But part of this new philosophy that was emerging in Northern California with uh, George and Francis and Phil Kaufman, who we'll probably talk about in a minute, and Mm -hmm. others, was that we should go out and, and collect as much new material as we can for every project. Yeah, thank God for that philosophy because it certainly <laughs> kept me employed <laughs> for several years. Uh, but I think it really did make movies sound better and more interesting yeah. and, and more appealing. And it, at least it gave like the Wilhelm scream a bed of fresh sound on, on which to lay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so at this point, you're recording sound effects and you're working in the sound department. At what point in your career did it occur to you that sound design specifically was the direction you wanted to go? Yeah, let me talk for a minute about what sound design is, or at least what that term is. Up until the 1970s, the people in charge of collecting and editing sound for films, certainly sound effects, but also dialogue, were called supervising sound editors. And the term sound design actually was used in uh, legitimate theater before it was used in in film. Hmm. Uh, you, you saw the, the credit sound designer on, on a few plays in, in New York and in San Francisco in, I think, maybe beginning the late 60s, certainly the early 70s. And it's been a controversial <laughs> title in much the same way that production designer was a controversial 
title. Mm. The production designer for Gone with the Wind was the first art director to be called a production designer. And it was because you know, the producer wanted to make Gone with the Wind, you know, the most amazing spectacle ever. And he thought, let's invent this whole new job description or at least title. Oh, I didn't know that. And a lot of the art directors at the time uh, accused him of some being self-aggrandizing and, you know, you're doing the same stuff we always do. And so why do you have to invent this new fancy title for yourself like you're doing something new? And the same thing happened with uh, the term sound design. A lot of the people who call themselves supervising sound editors got pretty defensive about the term sound designer because they saw these kind of younger, perhaps artsier people starting to call themselves sound designers, saying, you know, like Walter and like Ben said, the sound designer should be the person who's in charge of all of the sound except the music from pre-production through post-production. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of these uh, more traditional guys felt threatened by that. So this grand notion of the sound designer as the overlord of all the sound from pre-production to post I would say DP for your ears. You know, I mean, like that's <laughs> yeah. you're, you're doing what yeah. the DP does. You're just doing it for my ears. Yeah. And I, I want to talk a little more about that, too, because that's a really interesting point. In Hollywood, the term sound designer got quickly perverted to mean the nerdy person you bring in to do the spaceship sound effects. <laughs> <laughs> So the supervising sound editors wanted to make it clear that, you know, they were still the boss and the sound designer was this dude that they just brought in to come up with these kind of weird sounds that they didn't already have in the library. So that was pretty unfortunate. And I think only in the last few years has the term sound designer begun to be widely accepted inside the movie business. Interesting. I mean, like when I, w I went to film school in the early 90s and a really good friend of mine, Jeremy Galise, that was what he wanted to do was be a sound designer. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was a really interesting career path to be going down. But also when you realize, especially, you know, when you're getting into big blockbuster movie territory, the amount of work and creative decisions, it has such an amazing impact on the audience in so many ways as impactful or more impactful in some movies as uh, the visuals. You know, I think about a movie like John Carpenter's The Thing, which looks beautiful and the cinematography is amazing. The special effects are great. But if you just close your eyes while you're watching it, it's they figure out ways to make you uneasy, you know, yeah. and, and it's almost hitting you in like a, a lizard brain part of your body that sound can hit you in ways that kind of transcend intellectualizing or transcend your your conscious awareness of them, which is yeah. kind of why it's so such a powerful tool to use if, if when it's used well yeah, when we're inside of our mothers uh, we hear before we see and yeah. so I, our brains are designed to receive sound in a very fundamental primordial way and the cliche is that uh, sound sneaks in the side door to your brain <laughs> <laughs> but that makes it a great tool for a filmmaker because you can mm -hmm. have an effect on people without them consciously being aware that they're being affected. And people will tend to buy almost any sound that you present 
to them in a film context. They'll just go way out of their way to try to make sense of whatever sound you, you present. And so that, that's an amazing tool to have if you're a, a film storyteller. And unfortunately, very few directors are very sophisticated at using it. Every once in a while, IMDb gets stuff wrong and will confuse like post-production mixing with on-set mixing. And I do think that those two titles are kind of confusingly named so that it's Mm -hmm. like you are doing a kind of mixing on-set, but it's not the same as the kind of mixing you do in post. I think the, the tragedy of production sound, at least in American films, is that it's really mostly an engineering job. You know, your job is to get the best possible recording of the actors' voices, and there really isn't much creativity in it. And I think that's just a shame, because there should be. I think the production mixer should have the same kinds of conversations with the director in pre-production that the DP and the production designer have. And somebody on not on every film but on lots and lots of movies somebody is really desperately needed early on in pre-production to think in terms of sound and to think about the sound possibilities in whatever script they're working on Uh, and here's an example back to apocalypse now there's that famous scene very early in the film where martin sheen's character is in that hotel in saigon and he's lying on the bed looking up at the ceiling fan twirling above him but at first what you hear is not a ceiling fan you hear because he's hearing it in his brain helicopter rotors instead of a ceiling fan that idea was certainly never in the script that idea that he would look up at the ceiling fan and hear a helicopter Luckily, Francis you know, decided to get that POV shot of the ceiling fan. I don't know whether Francis, I've never asked him whether he was thinking you know, that day, hmm, that looks like helicopter rotors. <laughs> Maybe we could turn that into the sound of a helicopter at some point. But it certainly occurred to Walter Murch, who was the picture editor on that sequence. So I say, you know, if you're the production mixer, and you're either in pre-production looking at drawings or you know talking about how that scene is going to be shot or if you're on the set when it is being shot and you look up at that ceiling fan that somebody decided to put there you should think hmm looks like a helicopter blade uh, <laughs> I should, I should nudge the director and tell him about that and say, you know, it would be pretty cool to get a shot of Captain Willard's POV looking up at that fan because yeah. we might want to turn it into the sound of a helicopter later. And unfortunately, those kinds of discussions almost never happen between sound people on the set or sound people in, in pre-production and directors. Uh, it's all tends to be all very nuts and bolts. How do we get a usable recording of the dialogue on the set? To be fair, I should say that there are a few production mixers who do have those kinds of conversations with directors, but I would say it's 1%. Yeah, I, uh, I, I mean, I think that like there's such a like a there's a concrete wall between production sound mixing and post sound design and the mixing and sound effects and stuff. There is a company that I once worked with in L.A. called Iceman, 
and they do everything. So like if you're making a movie and they, you know, they, they work at various budget levels, but like if you're doing a movie, a low budget movie or whatever, they send out their own people to record the sound. They have their own Foley stage. They do all the, all the Foley recording. They have, you know, all the pro tools and the sound mixing and stuff like that. And they basically for under one roof and, and administered by the same two people, I think kind of deliver from beginning to end the whole product. And I've often thought that was like a really smart idea, more or less for the reason that you're describing, although I never thought about it as deeply as what you're describing, but it, it seems like a great idea because the, you know, the, the people who are going to be mixing the stuff are talking to the people who are recording it. And, and you would have that ability to kind of have there be, you know, because in pre-production, they're probably talking to the, the sound designers and all the people who are going to be doing that kind of work. They could at least relay that stuff to the people on set and they all work yeah. together. So they, you know, they just share information. But I think that's kind of an unusual setup because usually, uh, in my experience, you just hire production sound people and then you deliver files to editorial and then, you know, they, they never meet the sound design team. That's right. And I mean, like, I understand why it is the way it is, because when you're on set and the clock is ticking, you know, some directors are going to be more interested in hearing what someone who isn't them has to say about anything. But uh, no, I, I mean, I think it's 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 smart to think about that because it because it, it improves the product. When I when I think about Apocalypse now, I think about that first sound uh, effect. I, I think about that very moment you're describing. Yeah, literally the first sound you hear and, and before while the screen is still black is that synthesized helicopter mm -hmm. that you hear circling around you if you're lucky enough to hear it in uh, 5.1 or, or some other multi-channel format. But, but then just two minutes later or so, you're with Willard in that hotel room and, and looking up at that fan. So you talk a lot about like how you're pulling these elements. It's almost like you're a sound detective where you're like trying to imagine what something might sound like and then go out and find it in the real world. And there's like some detective work going on, which I think is really fascinating. But also when you keep talking about the elements that go into a sound, do you have a way creatively that you kind of break down like in something like the midnight sky when you've got like these propulsive snowstormy kind of things? Do you create like a database or is it like what's the process of kind of ideating like, okay, I want an element that sounds like pelleting sand and I want something that sounds like buffeting wind and I want something that just kind of sounds like a low drone. Like how do you even go about kind of ideating what you're gonna put together to assemble those sounds? Yeah. The, usually one of the first things I do on a film, typically after having at least read the script, if not looked at whatever footage exists at that point, and after I've had a conversation with the director about you know, style, it's every movie has a sound style, just like it has a mm -hmm. visual style. But we're, you know, we're not as articulate about talking about sound as we are visual. So sometimes it's a little difficult to tease out of the director what the sound style is going to be. Usually mm -hmm. one of the best ways is to talk about, refer to other movies. You know, it, it, I guess it's a little bit like so-and-so. That's how they build their visual styles as well. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> But of course, you know, you you have to be careful uh, in terms of how you word it because no director wants to think that they're you know copying somebody else's style. So uh, of it's, course not. It's a little like so and so, and oh yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a little like that. Do you remember how blah 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 did <laughs> such and such? Yeah, it's gonna be like that, but cooler. Yeah, not that we want to do that, but <laughs> we're not doing that. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so after I've done all those things, talk to the director and, and seen whatever exists of the movie and read the script, I often just start listening to sounds. 
at random, literally at random. I don't seek out sounds that I think are going to be appropriate for the movie. We have a vast sound library at, at Skywalker. It's well over uh, 10 terabytes of audio. Wow. You know, 2,500 different recordings of wind, for instance. And it's amazing. Almost every one of them is different in some way from every other one. And it's possible with the database program that we have to quickly just switch from sound to sound to sound and jump categories. And and so I do that. And I think that's one of the most productive things that I do creatively, because what happens every time is that within a minute or two of listening to these sounds randomly, I'll hear a sound that will make some kind of emotional or story connection for me with this movie that I'm beginning to work on. And Mm -hmm. it'll be a connection and a sound that never would have occurred to me to put on a list of sounds that I need. Because sound is so metaphorical. We think of one sound in terms of another sound and how it relates to another sound. So I might listen to, in fact, on The Midnight Sky, I did listen to an explosion And it wasn't the explosion itself, it was the kind of rumbling echo of the explosion at the very end. Hmm. This rumbling had a really interesting sound to it, and I thought there is a lot of wind in the midnight sky, and that kind of rumbling feeling that you get often in, in a heavy wind... Uh, when it's, you know, literally the wind is blowing across your ears and you can kind of feel it in your body. I thought that's something that that's a feeling, a kind of sonic generated feeling that we should get in some of these wind sequences. And so I made a little note. And in (laughs) fact, I wound up using some fire rumbling and some rumbling from the ends of explosions in some of those winds in the midnight sky. So that, that's interesting. And you brought up an idea that I've never heard anyone say before in talking about this, and that's sound styles. And, you know, of course it exists. You know, like when we talk about film genres, if you say like, it's noir, people, you know, immediately something pops into your head. But what do you think is an effective way to talk about sound styles? Uh, do you have categories that you've made up that you would... Uh, or, or the people in the sound world kick around when they're saying, oh, you know, it's bright comedy or whatever. Yeah, I I wish there was a vocabulary for it. There really isn't. Uh, The best I can do is usually bring up examples. Like, for instance, um, I I worked on a couple of the Harry Potter movies. And Mm -hmm. as we know, you know, magic happens in in the Harry Potter films. And in, in a way, it's... And so you have magic spells. And so the question is, how are we going to do the sound for these magic spells and what might the elements be and if you compare that to you know a, a Star Trek movie in a way similar things happen uh, in a Star Trek movie things are made to appear and disappear and things kind of transmogrify you know visually before your eyes uh, in a somewhat similar way to the way that they would in a in a Harry Potter magic spell sequence. But the sound style of Star Trek carries with it a kind of feeling of electronics 
and electricity and in a way a kind of artificial sound as opposed to an organic sound. Whereas when we were working on Harry Potter, we knew that everything had to be absolutely organic and natural sounding. And so, you know, if we had tried to substitute the sound effect of a person materializing in Star Trek into Harry Potter, you would, it would be wrong. You just know immediately there's something wrong about that sound. And so for the magic in Harry Potter, I knew that I'd have to resort to things like lightning and thunder and Alka-Seltzer sizzling, you know, fizzing in a glass and, you know, very natural, organic sounds to generate the, the feeling of magic. I still love the, I, the, kind of the, the investigative nature of this, though. Like, it wouldn't, I, I, I've heard Alka-Seltzer, and as soon as you said that, I know exactly what one would sound like. But I wonder if just, like, going through life and interacting with the world, if you're always interrogating every new thing you encounter for its audio properties and how it might, you know, filing it away for 10 years from now when you're making a Star Wars movie or, you know, you're making a movie about a witch being burned in the 1700s or whatever, like, they're all just going to pop in there. Is it is it a, just a fundamentally different mindset that you go through life with uh, in terms, like, are you yeah. constantly, like... It's, it's, it's something you can learn. I think some people are, are have more talent at a certain kind of listening than others have, but it's it's something you can get better at. But in order to be a good sound designer, you definitely have to be able to divorce yourself from the literal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to think of sound in a kind of metaphorical way and just receive a sound and be aware of it as kind of raw material and uh it's 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 not always easy and i think you do get better at it over time and uh you know i i certainly am not thinking that way consciously you know (laughs) all the time i don't walk down the street thinking well i could use that sound for this and that sound for that but i'd say when a, a sound does hit me emotionally in one way or another whether i think it's comical or scary or mysterious in some sense uh, I do it does register in a kind of professional way <laughs> and and I think hmm I should come back and record that later when I was younger I used to carry a, a recorder a small recorder with me uh, almost everywhere I don't do that so much anymore but I think that's very useful if you're a sound designer to just you know ha- be able to record almost anything you encounter because you never know when you're going to hear something useful and it's uh it's often things that are broken (laughs) that sound the best because they have more character (laughs) (laughs) i have several cars that probably would have been good for that so uh, I'm, I'm interested too because you know like at the beginning and you're talking about like you're recording unique sounds for for all of these films and you know working uh with skywalker sound where you say there are what 10 terabytes of sound effects to what degree when you're working on a movie now are you hoping to source unique sounds that aren't in a library anywhere and how much do you do you lean on library sounds because you know the fidelity of library sounds is amazing but also you you use it Mm -hmm. in the midnight sky and then you hear it in a you know a Charmin commercial the next week or whatever you know it's it's a it's a digital file that anyone can access yeah a sound designer uh younger than I am named Ren Kleiss who's a real up-and-comer and getting a lot of attention these days he's uh 
uh, worked with David Fincher since the beginning of uh, David's career. I think they went to school nice. together. And extremely talented guy, also works at Skywalker. And his ethos is that he tries to record every sound in the film new for every film. Uh, he strenuously avoids using any sound from a library. Um, and I, I have to admire him for it. It's, it's a bold and brave thing to do. I wouldn't do it because I think that sometimes a sound that you'll find in a library is going to be better in terms of you know, storytelling than something yeah. that you'll be able to come up with you know, for that film. So I prefer to take the road of trying to record as many new sounds as we can for every film, but also being open, very much open to using things in libraries. And as you said, especially in older films, there are certain sounds that you would hear over and over again. And I, I think that's usually a bad idea unless you're uh, you know, doing it as a joke, which is the, the case of the Wilhelm scream that's in so many films. But because I and, and most sound designers build sounds out of elements, we don't just go record an explosion and that's the sound literally that winds up in the movie unaltered. We manufacture explosions out of three, five, 20 different elements. Sometimes yeah. the first few milliseconds of an explosion is one sound and the next 20 milliseconds is another sound and, and or three other sounds simultaneously. We're always building sounds out of many, many elements. And so you can use the sounds from a library as elements in a way that they'll never be recognized, even if they've been in you know, half a dozen films already. Mm hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I always wonder about that because, again, like, you know, when you listen to older sound effect elements, you know, they were recorded on lesser microphones or lesser media. Or they don't hold up to what what you hear today. But when you hear something, even something, you know, it's 10, 15 years old, some of them are recorded on, you know, just amazing microphones. And uh, yeah. I, I, I'm just always curious about it because, again, you, you have the tools now digitally to mess with the pitch and the eq and add flanges and stuff i've never heard of you know a, a million plugins that you would have in a, in a pro tools kind of thing so you could take something like you're saying an explosion and even if you just were using that you could make it probably sound very different without speeding parts of it up slowing parts of it down whatever layering it but you know sometimes it doesn't even make sense to use the best uh, microphone uh ben burt uh, did the sound for uh, a documentary that had lots of rocket launches in it and probably the most convincing sound of a huge rocket launch that I've ever heard was Ben holding a cheap microphone out the window of a car that was driving about 50 miles an hour with no windscreen on it. And so it's just complete distortion, but mm -hmm. you absolutely buy it as the sound of that rocket because it, it feels like something totally out of control uh, verite is completely believable. Well, do you think that there's something that you worked on that that people don't reference enough or don't talk about enough? Like, you know, I was, you know, looking on your filmographies, you know, things like Errol Morris's Thin Blue Line, which is, you know, such an amazing movie and stuff like that. And, you know, you don't even think about 
sound design in terms of documentary but of course errol morris everything is is very designed um but but is there a specific project of yours that you think people should check it out just to hear the work that you did or just to hear the sound like what are those movies that we don't hear about as much even though it's certainly not an obscure film i don't think the bob zemeckis movie contact got as much attention as it should have and i'm really proud of the sound work that we did on that film and so I, that's one that I, I wish uh, people talked about a little more, both in terms of the movie and, and the sound. Like what about the sound? Like what things were you playing with or changing up or like, you know, what were the surprises in making something like Contact? Well, that was certainly a film where uh, I got involved pretty early. Bob knew that sound was going to be very important because, you know, Jodie Foster discovers these aliens uh, by wearing headphones and mm. hearing this signal. So we knew the sound of the signal was going to be very important. And I spent a long time trying various options for what that signal would sound like. And uh, interestingly enough, my favorite was not Bob's favorite. And of course, Bob's favorite is the one that's in the movie. But, uh, but, I've, <laughs> but I've grown to uh, like it more because people do occasionally say, wow, that, that signal is uh, great. And so I always say, well, yeah, it wasn't my favorite. I think mine w- would have been even better. <laughs> but it was one of the ones that I'd done. So I can't complain too much. But I think that one also, that film does stick out for me because I, I did get some input in, in pre-production and, and during production and very early on. I remember um, one of the early visual effects experiments for those shots where the Jodie Foster character is going through the wormhole and she's seeing stars and nebulae and various other things fly by her as she's traveling through this wormhole into another dimension. Bob asked me to take a look at that to just begin thinking about what it should sound like. And I saw it as a problem because the visual effects designers had put so many of these bright light, star-like things galaxies, whatever they're supposed to be, flying by, that there would have been nothing to focus on in terms of sound. It would have just been noise. Because if even if I'd attempted to do a sound for one-tenth as many things as we saw flying by us, it would just sound like you were standing next to Niagara Falls. Uh, there would mm-hmm. be nothing coherent or articulate about it. And so I shyly, because it's always a little dangerous for sound people to make any suggestions about what something should look like. I said, you know, Bob, at least for me, it would make life easier and and I think make it a better sequence sonically if there were either fewer objects flying by or some stuck out visually more than others. Some were much brighter or more prominent or larger than others so that those would be the ones we would really focus on in terms of sound and we'd get this great you know doppler effect of them flying by and they wouldn't have so much competition i think we could still get the sense that there was a lot of stuff going on but we could focus on them on these few things and luckily i think he was thinking along the same lines anyway Mm -hmm. and so um i think that that's one of the few times in my career when i think a a suggestion that I've made about something visual actually made it into the movie, but but still based on sound, based on the needs of sound. 
I, I also wanted to talk to you about The Incredibles, which you won an Oscar for. And I, I, I like winning an Oscar, like, you know, uh, from from your, your humble beginning starting on Apocalypse Now, still pretty awesome. You know, winning an Oscar is, you know, that's obviously the highest honor that you can really get in, in this industry. Uh, how did, did it change your life? How did it change your life? What was it like winning winning that moment? Getting an Oscar for a sound person certainly doesn't make as big an impact as it does for an actor, for sure. But I think even uh, for a DP, it puts you in the limelight a little bit. And you know, you mm. might get one or two calls that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise. But I think getting an Oscar certainly isn't a guarantee that you're going to be offered you know, a great project next or that you're necessarily even going to be busy. There's a, the famous curse of the Oscar where often when, when you get an Oscar, you, <laughs> nobody calls you for uh, the next year. Oh, really? <laughs> And I think that I've it, actually never heard that. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I, a lot of people. I've heard a lot of people say that. Actually, I think, as I say, it's rare for an actor or a director, but I think for people in other crafts, it, it does happen sometimes. Or maybe it's just imaginary that you think nobody's mm-hmm. calling. Yeah, I'm like, add an extra zero on the end of my paycheck. That's you know, <laughs> yeah. what I would hope it would mean. It, uh, it, and that also is the sort of thing that hap- tends to happen more with people who are more in the limelight, like directors and, and, mm. uh, and actors, than it does with uh, sound people. But you know, the Oscar is such an iconic thing that it can't help but have a huge effect on you when you receive one. You know, I'd gotten one for the right stuff. And so The Incredibles was my second one. But I'd say it wasn't any less of a thrill, maybe more of a thrill, because I think I was a little more conscious of what was going on. I was in Mm -hmm. such a trance the first time that there wasn't much that computed there for a few days, (laughs) certainly not when I was standing on the stage. But um, for The Incredibles, I had the the presence of mind to actually make a little uh, political speech, in a sense, uh, I every every year there's this uh, talk around award season of so-called technical awards, mm-hmm. meaning basically everything except acting and directing, and uh, that really offends me because uh, we are not technicians. You know, we're not hired to be technicians. We're not hired because we know exactly what knob to turn or how fast to turn it whether we're you know, DPs or visual effects people or sound people or, or whatever, uh, you're hired because of your creative judgment. Yeah. So it, it really offends me to be referred to as you know, somebody who has won a technical award. So I basically said that on stage when I was given the Oscar for The Incredibles. I said, uh, some people refer to these as technical awards. They are not technical awards. If you're a film editor or a cinematographer or if you do visual effects, you're, giving, you're being given the award f- for artistic decisions that you've made. Some yeah. of them you make well, some you make, don't make so well. And I guess I was lucky enough in this case to make a few good ones. Thank you. <laughs> I worked with a producer once who would who would discuss people in those in positions like editor or uh, storyboard artist, you know, anything that really is a very creative position that often gets overlooked. And he would always say, "I'm looking for people from the neck up, not the wrist down." Yeah, and, that's a great and way to put I, it. 
Uh, yeah, and I, I really do feel like that's, you know, because we talked a little bit about that off mic beforehand. Sound design is such an art and such a craft. And, you know, you've, you've got more technical tools at your disposal today than ever before. And it will always, you know, 10 years from now, there'll be more and more and more. But, uh, you know, it's it's really, it's it's the same with uh, with DPs. When we talk to DPs, you know, you, you talk to somebody like Ellen Curis, who, uh, you know, you give her a PD-150 and she makes a gorgeous movie out of it. It's because she's a great DP. Not because that that cam- not because she knows how to program the camera or set the settings right, and and it's not even to be insulting to the technicians who make a lot of that stuff happen. But these are all high high end creative thinkers. Like you're you're all storytellers, and so sound is is kind of uh, you know is, is is again just an enormous part of it. So before we lose you, and there are so many more movies I'd love to discuss with you, but let's talk about the Midnight Sky. And I'm interested after talking to you all this time, what were the sound ideas that you had going in and you know like how does that evolve as you're as you're working on something like that one of the tricky things for sound in a movie is figuring out how the different kinds of sound are going to work together and the really big categories of sound on a film the dialogue the music and the sound effects Mm -hmm. and one of the things that always helps me on a film is if there are periods in a film when nobody is talking because there's something about the human ear that demands to hear human speech. So if there's any human speech going on, even if it's unintelligible to you, that's what you're going to concentrate on. So Mm -hmm. it's incredibly difficult to kind of shoehorn sound design or even music. You'll hear composers often complain about this into sequences that are dialogue heavy sequences because it's just the natural tendency for the audience to be concentrating on the dialogue and not even Mm -hmm. be affected by the sound design or the musical score. So I was lucky on The Midnight Sky that there are quite a few sequences where there's very little dialogue. So that opens the door for both uh, Alexander Desplat and me to do our thing. And so then the next challenge is how to choreograph that dance between music and sound design. And that's always a big challenge because in some cases you're trying to cover some of the same storytelling ground. And there are various ways to deal with that problem. One of them is to decide fairly early on that certain sequences are just going to be music-driven sequences and certain sequences are going to be sound design-driven sequences. Mm-hmm. And that's very often the decision that we make on Bob Zemeckis' movies because he's very aware of this potential conflict and, and often makes those decisions fairly early in the process. But... You can also trade off moment to moment. Okay, this moment is the score is going to be able to do something that the sound design is not going to be able to do or, or vice versa. That is interesting. So we think about and experiment with all of these options. That's certainly something that we, a process that we went through on the Midnight Sky. There, there's a sequence early in the film where you're watching Sully Uh, the woman crew member whose job it is to try to make contact with anybody else over the radio from the spaceship. And she will, you know, turn her microphone on, say, you know, is there anybody out there? Is anybody listening, etc.? And then she'll be quiet. And then the camera pulls 
away from her sitting at her console then out the window of the spaceship that she's in so that you see the whole spaceship and then moves across various parts of the spaceship as it moves away from the camera. This is the spaceship Ether returning from Jupiter mission. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. I'm receiving. This is Lake Hazen weather station. <laughs> Lake Hazen, I can't tell you how happy I am to hear your voice. For some reason, you're the only person who wants to talk to me. We've lost contact with NASA and everyone else. Do you have information on our transmission blackout? Lake Hazen, are you there? How much have you picked up about the conditions on Earth? We've received nothing. I wish I could. I'm sorry, Lake Hazen. I missed that last transmission. Mission control. Lake Hazen, are you receiving this? And that's a sequence that I worked on very intensely to try to figure out how sounds that felt like radio signals in one form or another could work with the score that Desplat had already done. Mm. I think it, you know, it probably wasn't going to be in the cards for Alexandra to alter his score, so I had to figure out how to, <laughs> how to dance around the score. And I think we did a pretty good job at that. But uh, the key to it, to buying the concept at all, was that you saw elements of the spaceship that looked like antennas. And so you could kind of buy that, okay, I'm hearing radio pings or tones that sound like they have something to do with uh, radio broadcasting. Maybe I pulled on my history from uh, radio. That hadn't occurred to me before. <laughs> <laughs> Um, in the Midnight Sky, there's uh, that scene where the ice breaks and we go into the water. Could you talk a little bit about just like how you, it feels like it's happening to you? But I, I always wonder about stuff like that. Are you looking? Are, are you listening to it and saying like, I want this to sound like reality, or I want this to sound like what it feels like to be in this circumstance? We we certainly knew that we needed you know an organic, natural sound in general for for the Midnight sky for for everything in it and so we wanted everything to sound you know completely believable and the ice breaking sequence was certainly like that but we also want it to be musical in in a way the the mm -hmm. that is the breaking of the ice itself by which I mean we want it to have loudness dynamics. We want to have some moments that are really loud, some moments that are not so loud, because if everything is loud, nothing is loud. And we want it to have lots of different kind of tonalities, the sound of the ice cracking and breaking. So that, in a way, is, is a kind of musical sound as well. So I, I had a pretty good library available to me already of recordings of ice shifting and breaking. And you know, I'm on a lot of sound design Facebook groups. And one of the reasons that I do that, uh, despite all the abuse that I get there, is that... <laughs> um, 
it's great to have all these contacts all over the world of people who go out and record sounds because I can say so-and-so in Helsinki here we are in March and April I know the rivers are beginning to thaw around now can you please go out and record these huge chunks of ice you know breaking off as, as the river thaws and banging into each other and so I can, you know, get those sounds. We, we buy all those sounds nice. from, the, from the people who record them and put them into the movies. And so I take those sounds, those raw recordings, and very often I'll pitch manipulate them so that, you know, a sound that changes in pitch over time tends to catch our ear. So in any complex sequence, sound sequence, where there are lots of competing sounds, that might very well just kind of blot each other out and mask each other. If you want a particular sound to catch the ear of the audience, one of the tricks is to have it change in pitch over time. Because there's something about the human ear that's really interested in dynamic pitch change. So in that icebreaking sequence in The Midnight Sky, I wound up pitch changing uh, quite a few of those ice cracking sounds so that they begin at a mm. lower pitch and go to a higher pitch or vice versa or go up and down um, and it really helps them stand out in the mix and not just sound like noise. I need to go watch that sequence again. Um, I feel like we've used up uh, a lot of your time and I mean I, I would personally love to talk to you about Backdraft and Forrest Gump and I, I mean the the list goes on you know the Jumanji Mars Attacks there's so many amazing movies well, let's, uh, uh, let's and, do and, this another uh, time yeah we'll, we'll do it again before we go is there uh, any place people can find your work online besides literally watching any movie made in the last 40 years <laughs> I don't think I worked on all those movies all of them. <laughs> Sometimes feels <laughs> like it. Well, I, I have a blog. Um, Ooh. Yeah, it's uh, if you look up Randy Tom blog. That's T-H-O-M. That's right. Just my name without any dots or dashes or anything. R-A-N-D-Y-T-H-O-M-B-L-O-G. Mm-hmm. It's at WordPress. And I uh, talk about all things movie sound. Brilliant. Randy Tom blog at WordPress. Everybody check that out. That That is <laughs> awesome. Well, Randy, it's amazing to meet you. And uh, thank you for all the amazing movies that uh, I have watched my entire life that you uh, you had some hand in or an, an enormous hand in. My, my wife and I, our, our first date actually was going to see Contact. So uh, mm. pretty amazing stuff. And uh, can't thank you enough for coming on to the podcast. It was my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. So that was Randy Tom. I'm pretty sure your mind is probably blown while you're listening to me talk. He's just one of those people who uh, he's, he's a wealth of information, experienced all of film history, uh, the, the film, the movies that raised me. He was doing sound for almost all of them. It's, it's just pretty amazing. And now, short ends. So Ben, it's time for our famed end of the show, or second half of the show, short ends. Uh, <laughs> this this is basically where we talk about sort of uh, a personal obsession, something that we're really into this week. Do you have something? Do you have something that, uh, that's been your obsession, uh, your short end this week? Yeah, I've had a couple obsessions, but the one I decided to talk about is the documentary Zappa by friend of the show, Alex Winter, who, uh, oh, who came yeah. on uh, just a few months ago to talk about a different documentary that he made. And Zappa is currently on Hulu. 
and I checked it out and it's about, you know, legendary musician, rock star. What do you even say about the man? Frank Zappa, one of the most prolific artists, you know, of the 20th century who, uh, who died tragically. I think he was 52 years old when he died of cancer and it was a real tragedy. But Alex Winter, let's, let's uh, was also, let me just interrupt you for one second here. Let me just also just give a major props for creative children names because it totally makes my name not seem nearly so crazy. So uh, congratulations absolutely to Frank for naming his kids Moon Unit and Dweezil. So, That's true. That's true. Yeah. 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 I mean, if you're in L.A., though, I mean, I, I imagine that if, if you're Audio growing science. up in L.A., th- there's there's no uh, there's pilot no inspector. Lim- there's no limit to how weird your the children names can be anyway. Yeah. Um, Sorry, but, I didn't mean to interrupt you. There, go, uh, uh, dive, no, but, dive back in. Yeah. And and I have to say, I watched the documentary mostly because of Alex Winter. Because uh, was I a fan, or am I a, fr- a fan of Frank Zappa music? Not especially. I think I uh, was born a little too late to be into Frank Zappa. I think his music doesn't exactly make a lot of sense to like. It's his music is challenging to listen to intentionally by design. It's it's very complex. You know, I just wasn't of the group that was way into Zappa. But I decided to check it out because of Alex Winter and because also I knew that the Zappa estate had given him access to this enormous vault, which they actually show in the documentary uh, several times of uh, video archives and audio archives where, you know, Zappa was unbelievably prolific as an artist. Like, it's hard to believe there's a scene in the movie where he's still kind of young. He's probably in his maybe early thirties and he's being interviewed in black and white by somebody on a camera. And while he's talking, he's not wearing a shirt. He's like sitting there with like musical notation paper and like writing music while he's having the conversation with somebody. Like he's already got the music in his head and he's just writing it out. He, you know, moved from doing like, you know, crazy experimental rock and roll stuff to doing like Stravinsky, like symphonic arrangements. He was a huge uh, fighter for uh, the first, Amendment and justice. Uh, I, I remember uh, from my years in high school when there was the whole move to uh, put uh, parental advisories on music, which actually I think did prevail. They started doing it on records and, and tapes and CDs back then. Uh, Frank Zappa was one of the people who went and fought it in Congress. You know, made a bit made a big deal. And I remember that was probably my first memory of Zappa as a kid. Was like, who's the guy with the weird mustache who's yelling at the congressman? You know, seemed kind of cool. But the movie just kind of shows like what an absurd excessive artist he was what a deep thinker he was and it does give you a taste of his music i mean more than a taste it gives you a lot of his music but i can assure people who maybe are like me and they weren't massive massive fans of his music the documentary is really about the the artist like the obsessive artist and you know we always talk about on this podcast we're about art art craft and philosophy and i feel like frank zappa is a purveyor of all three and talks about all three very very freely and uh, the modern interviews that uh, Alex Winter conducted, you know, with with a lot of his collaborators go into even more depth about what it was like to work with uh, an obsessive like him. And uh, I just I found it extremely engaging, like it just very compelling, very engaging, so well done. And, uh, you know, my hat's off to Alex Winter, who just impresses me more each each time he does something. You know, I think that's a really great synopsis. I'm very similar to you. I don't actually, I'm not totally familiar with all of Frank Zappa's uh, work and background, but I am familiar with, of course, the appearances of his children primarily on MTV and a, a, a little bit of yeah. his, uh, his backstory. And uh, of course, huge fan of Alex and can't wait to see it myself. And now I'm, I'm even more eager to see it after that 
that uh, that little review you just did because that's uh, yeah, so, it yeah. sounds fantastic. I'm, I'm in. And it's just a, it's just a great piece of documentary work. I just love it when I see a documentary that takes me into a world I wasn't really familiar with and and holds my hand enough so I can it's not alienating or anything like that. And I can I could see a documentary about Zappa. You could decide to make it like his music and to make it very complex and hard to follow. And I think that Alex Winter did a good job of making it like you lean in, you lean forward because you want to see where it goes next. And it's, it's very engaging and interesting. It's not spoon feeding you. And it's absolutely not a hagiography. I hate it when, when I see those things where it's just like making somebody seem like a flawless, wonderful person when, you know, no one is a flawless, wonderful person. I mean, I guess they're (laughs) wonderful people, but no one's flawless. And, and I feel like you kind of get a sense watching this that like Zappa was challenging to work with Zappa was challenge it was challenging to be his kid it was challenging to be married to him uh it was you know and and yet through all of that you've got this guy who's who's just like a fire hose of creative brilliance like his creativity kind of just had no bounds in the world that he was in it's uh it's it's an exciting ride of a documentary and you know alex winter just he's he's such a great storyteller i i just i i really enjoyed the whole thing so i'll i'll stop uh waxing its car but i definitely go check out uh zappa if you if you have hulu check out zappa I've decided that I'm just going to start leaning into my more technical product based short ends. Uh, I, I got some feedback from some people le- recently that they, they like it and they wanted to hear what I'm, I'm sort of interested in geeking out on lately. All so, right. Uh, so, so this what, week's so going to be your short end. Yeah. Yeah. I want, I can't wait to hear what geeky shit you want to talk about. Uh, all right. So uh, this is super geeky and super niche. And you'll notice that if you haven't been paying attention, that most of the sort of these tech product things that I, I'm mentioning here tend to be more uh, lower dollar, more sort of like introductory level stuff or more sort of like uh, basic, you know, entry level professional stuff, because frankly, I think that there's an awful lot of people who listen to the show that that's sort of like the level of gear they're looking at. They're not exactly looking for the latest and greatest uh, gigantic full frame, you know, super zoom from Ingenue or Aerie. Uh, <laughs> I have so, $500,000 <laughs> burning a hole in my pocket and I would like one lens. <laughs> so I'm going to actually talk about a piece of technology which does not exist yet. And they haven't given a price, but because it's from the company Tilta, which is a Chinese manufacturer of, I'm just going to say it, low cost gear their stuff is low cost they have not uh they've never made any bones about being anything other than low cost and their stuff is low cost but uh that's all part of their brand and their product uh you know placement and everything in the industry and i don't think that's a a bad thing they build a lot of stuff for like sony alpha cameras and black magic cameras and they have announced that for the latest and perhaps most popular at least at the moment black magic camera the pocket cinema camera 6k pro which is getting all kinds of buzz and stuff because it's a tremendous amount of camera for very low dollars. There's a $500 viewfinder that Blackmagic made, and immediately the thing that everyone who I talked to in this industry said when they saw it is, it's great, so wish that I could move it from its position directly on top of the viewfinder, directly over the lens on the back of the on the top of the camera. I'd really love to move that in a more traditional place where you'd find a viewfinder, an EVF, on a on a cinema camera, which is going to be on the operator side or the left side if you're facing the rear of the camera mm. and have some sort of adjustable thing. Well, Tilta is claiming that they have some new patented technology which allows you to do that, to take that EVF made by Blackmagic and then move it six inches or 12 inches they created this little dock so you can move it over to where you want it and they also have a bunch of hardware which they kind of showcased showing like how you'll be able to adjust it and spin it around and this that and the other and it looks pretty darn good i I don't know how well it works uh i don't know how uh, trusty and flexible and everything else it is but 
if it well, does you what it's seen it yet. No, nobody has seen this yet. No, nobody's seen it except for some some drawings, some computer renderings. It, what looks like photographs, but it might might actually be photographs on on their website. But it's super cool that they did this, and it's super cool that they were paying attention in, in a way that even Black Magic, like I'm sure that people said to them, "Boy, it'd be so great if you could put this over there." But Black Magic said, "You know what? Third parties are going to do it." And when I talked to Black that Magic, that really about is it, their they, mo over at, Mad, at Black Magic, and it has been from the beginning. Like they'll do something that's a little that's ergonomically questionable and they'll be like oh someone else will figure out how to fix this problem that we (laughs) could have not had in the first place well you know i think that their whole thing is about being sleek and not having cables and this is clearly not sleek and not having cables and and, and by the way that's that's not a super dig at black magic i think they make really great products i'm not i'm not i'm not bagging on them but i do remember kind of getting into uh let's say a spirited conversation uh with them when they first revealed their very first camera at nab and there's always like they'll release something like the the big ursa camera that they released that was Mm -hmm. like you know just much bigger than any camera anyone was gonna haul around the at that price point and then they came out with the mini and it was like oh that makes way more sense well well i gotta give some props to tilted too because their hardware they show like built-in cable management so like there's actually a place to like put your cable and you'd be surprised how many people make products uh, that don't uh, you know for this industry that requires a cable but they don't give you a place to put it so that i would cables not just be surprised like- at that at all <laughs> Just kind of flops around or gets tangled or gets in the way. Me and my uh, bongo ties would not be even mildly surprised. Well, uh, they they look like they were pretty thoughtful about this. And I'm really kind of looking forward to seeing it. And if it's as brilliant as I hope it is and it comes to market as as soon as it does, I I will gladly uh, promote it as such because it really then takes what was like a solid, you know, base hit double with the viewfinder, having that as a $500 option for the pocket 6k pro and then making it super flexible to be able to put it where you want it and probably all sorts of other configurations and rigs and things that you can now do with that and i think that that actually just ups the value of that camera even more so that uh people out there can shoot and work the way they want to in bright sunlight in you know uh, all kinds of different conditions with this uh this little viewfinder so that's very exciting and no one knows when it'll come no one knows what it'll cost but uh you know it's it's cool to see that someone was paying attention and did something cool about it so we'll see i'll check that out and i, I kind of like the dynamic of you talking about really practical gear that our listeners can just sink their teeth right into and me talking about weird esoteric uh you know <laughs> apps or some documentary or whatever it's a little left brain right brain so yeah that's uh, that's fine i'm i'm, I'm good with that so <laughs> that's cool yeah, I, yeah. I reserve the right to step out of this this niche but you know i kind of oh, feel too. like yeah, if I yeah, geek out I, on a piece of gear i just got an apple pencil and i'm like whoa apple pencil how amazing is this you know i, I get it all right. Well, well, uh, well, cool. You'll have to tell us what you do with that pencil in future episodes. Yeah, it's not. All I that can tell you where you can stick that Apple pencil right on a piece of paper. Uh, right. It writes like a pencil. Right. Isn't that what it does? No, just on an iPad. It doesn't oh, on an iPad. OK, so so yeah. not on just any tablet must be an iPad. iPad Pro probably. Uh, I don't have an iPad Pro. I have a regular oh, okay. old run of the mill base model uh, 10.2 inch uh, iPad. Well, well, look at you, common man. Okay, great. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're they're relatively inexpensive. I, I got one on a sale at Best Buy, but the Apple Pencil is pretty cool. But anyway, uh, my whole point was, uh, you know, you 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 definitely uh, lean into the gear stuff. That's your stock and trade, and my stock and trade is what again? I have no idea. Who cares? <laughs> Clearly, it's boat motors. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you had to say it. It hurts. 
It burns every time. Uh, no, I mean, really, I, I, I mention it just because <laughs> I really hope the people from Benrock.com are listening and go like, see, he is involved in the motorsport trade. He is. He is. Uh, that's his, <laughs> we're, we're right to I, deny I think, him. I think you're talking yeah. about the Brunswick Corporation. Oh, who the owns Brunswick. Benrock.com. <laughs> and uh, I reached out to them finally on Facebook and said, hey, would anybody be willing to discuss this with me? And I kind of said, here's who I am. And I'm literally putting, this is the website I'm going to put on it. You can already see it. I'm never going to sell a boat of any kind in my entire life. And they were like, we're not ready to sell it at this time. And there's nothing on it. If you go to benrock.com, not a goddamn thing on the goddamn website still. <laughs> and, and there hasn't been anything on it for years. They won't let me have a thing they're not using. I hate people. Uh, let's thank some people. You do want to hate right. everybody. You, you, I don't you hate like, everybody. You, you, you like some people. Hey, uh, let, I'm, not, I'm not an unbridled misanthrope, but uh, you know the the Brunswick Corporation makes me sad. You know, anyway. let's thank Roberto Miller again. Let's thank Roberto Miller. Thank you, Roberto Miller, for for connecting us with Randy Tom. That was that oh, was fantastic. So Sorry. awesome, Roberto. We we can't thank you enough. Uh, we should definitely thank Alana Cody, who again is kicking all the ass and getting us uh, s- some just amazing interviews. We have some great ones coming up. Yeah, and if you like the stuff that we've done lately, the Maddie Libatiques and the Randy Tom, you don't have any idea. The Dana Gonzalez, you have no idea what's coming up. We got so much good stuff coming up. It's, uh, it's incredible. We, we, yeah, we have quite a run. And uh, we should definitely thank uh, Ben Katz, who edited this. And I, I think actually this time we didn't give him too much of a challenge, making us not sound like idiots. Uh, yeah, I, I, th- I think that he's he's able to accurately portray us without like hopefully, uh, you know, breaking his finger this one time. The, the appropriate level of idiocy is is going to come through, no doubt. Yeah, we're not giving him carpal tunnel syndrome or tennis elbow editing us around us being morons this time. <laughs> yeah, and, and let's thank Kay Zalatrachi, you know, last and least. No, no, I'm kidding. Not least, of course, not but, least. you know, probably not, not probably not listening. That's, that's really what I meant, I meant to say is Kay's, definitely, def, you know, he might listen to this one because, you know, he's, oh, you're he, right. He he's might a, listen to this he's one. He's a composer. And, and honestly, he doesn't like people to know this about him, uh, but I'll out him anyway. He's an amazing sound designer and an amazing sound mixer. You're right. This might be the one that he actually he he tunes in and listens. But you know he probably won't listen to the end of the show here. So oh that's, no, no, we're no. safe. Although no. you do talk about black magic cameras, so you know that's that's oh, definitely that's his true. jam. Maybe, maybe maybe he will. This, yeah. this is, I I look forward to to quizzing uh, Kays about this later. <laughs> so Ben, where can people find you online if they want to like you look at your Instagrams or do your things, <laughs> whatever your well, as are. you already as you already pointed out, they cannot find me at benrock.com for that is owned by a boat manufacturer the brunswick corporation and they will not give me that website that url despite the fact that they're not using it for anything and it makes me very sad so because of that you can find me at benrockonline.com and on there you'll find uh, links to all the uh, social medias and stuff if you want to reach out on the twitter or the linkedin or whatever you want to check out my reel want to do anything that's where you do it and uh you know uh yeah and i'm not hard to find uh Ilya, where can people find you uh they can find me uh for the most part over at hot rod cameras HotRodCameras.com is the website we have all the socials and things but if you actually pick up the phone and, and call hot rod cameras there's a fairly good chance that i will be there i'm probably won't pick up the phone but if you ask for me uh there's a good chance they they will find me and you will actually talk to me that's and if they rudely demand a t-shirt uh are do you still have t-shirts we do they're I hope you like V-neck styles. If you're into the V-neck T-shirt, then uh, we got some of those left. We have women's sizes, quite a few, but uh, yeah, there there might be a couple of hats and other things too. If you if you show up and you say you mentioned the the podcast, uh, there's there's a free shirt in your in your future while supplies last. Awesome. Well, that is it, and we will see you next week here at the Cinematography Podcast. 
Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.